Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, the show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I'm your host, Lauren, and I have with me today ICR zoologist, Dr. Frank Sherwin. It's so good to have you with us today, Dr. Sherwin. So good to be here. So we are talking today about a topic I am very excited about. I love animals. I know we've got a lot of other animal lovers out there. That's one thing that you've spent so much time studying. And there is a massive number of different kinds of animals on this planet. Mm -hmm. We're gonna specifically focus in on mammals. So according to evolutionary thinking, they explain away the variety of mammals that we see by claiming that natural processes caused all of them to evolve and change over vast eons of time. And that's where all the variety that we see comes from, according to them. Scripture states that God created animals. Random processes did not create animals. So in addition, a lot of animals, that every animal that we see has these hallmarks that show they are clearly designed. Yeah. Random processes could not have accounted for just all of these special features. And we're gonna talk about some of those special features for some of our favorite animals today. So with all of that background, why do you think it's important that we look at what the creator has done in animals? Why do you think that that matters? A lot of people would say, oh, well, that's that might be a side issue. We need to talk about the um, just the geology. We need to talk mm -hmm. about um, things like that. But why do you think animals matter to God? Well, this is very important because we read about the creation account of animals in the very, very first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, God tells us that he created after their kind. Now, that's a phrase that we see over and over again in Genesis, and so it should cause us to sit up and take notice. After their kind, after its kind, after his kind. God says that 10 times. And so, ten. wow. Yeah. Just and make sure so, we don't miss it. <laughs> 10 times, exactly. And so it's like a, a parent speaking to a child and repeating themselves. So we should be very, very careful when we read scripture and understand that God did not use evolutionary processes, He created after their kind. Well, with that is as understanding as a basis, a, founda a foundation for um, uh, the creation model, we see that animals have always been animals and multicellular ad uh, animals in particular, mm -hmm. such as the reptiles and the mammals and the birds and, and the amphibians and such. And so that's exactly what we find today. What we do not find are the links that would link these major groups of animals together. And we would like to say that the missing links are missing. Imagine that. <laughs> and so uh, we don't see macro evolution. We just see minor variation within those created kinds mm -hmm. that was discussed in Genesis. And so evolutionary naturalism has rejected creation, has rejected the Bible, and therefore they're in the uncomfortable position of having to say the strange idea of evolution that ever so many millions of years ago on this primal planet, supposedly, you had inorganic non-life becoming organic life. Now, that's a pretty neat trick, and that's a very big problem for evolutionary naturalists, to have a primal planet that was red hot at one time, and slowly these uh, inorganic molecules became organic molecules, that is carbon-based, and you have the first life. And then this first life went on to transition, as it were, into the varieties of life that I just mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. through time and chance and natural processes. They would maintain that there is no creator, no designer. 
So when we look to the fossil record, again, we don't find that at all. As a matter of fact, in one of the lowest layers of the sedimentary rock units that we call the geologic column, we find a sudden explosion of complex life that we call the Cambrian explosion. Now, there's somebody else that knew about that and who was not a creationist, and his name was Charles Darwin. <laughs> he understood that the fossil record did not support his theory of evolution. Mm. And so with that in mind, we find that the Cambrian explosion is a real challenge to the evolutionary naturalists. Absolutely. Thank you for laying that groundwork. And everything we talk about from here on out is important because of that groundwork. It's because everything in this universe, including the animals we're going to talk about, show the glory and creativity of the creator that designed them and made them, not the magic that happened in nature through millions of years, um, <laughs> but through a person, God, who designed all of these things um, in some glorious ways. So that's great groundwork. We'll dive right in. The first animal we're going to talk about is the beaver. What makes the beaver unique? A lot of us just think of kind of the teeth or maybe the old show back in the 60s or 50s, leave it to beaver. What makes the beaver unique? Beavers are incredible animals. And before the flood, we found that beavers are very, very large. They're huge animals digging uh, large burrows. But as we like to say, animals have always been animals and the created kinds have always been the created kinds. So this includes the uh, rodents. Now, I enjoy studying rodents as a zoologist because rodents have always been rodents. As a matter of fact, there's a book out that was published by two editors in 2015 entitled Evolution of the Rodents. And they said in the opening pages of their book that if you take a, a look at the fossil record, you are tempted to say that rodents have always been rodents. Now, that was two evolutionary naturalists who have no theological axe to grind who are saying just exactly what creationists are saying. And, and what that, they're seeing in the, in the evidence. Yeah, what they're seeing in the evidence. It's uh, very, very hard for the evolution, evolutionist to, to paint an, uh, an evolutionary tree of the evolution of rodents, which includes large rodents like uh, the beaver. As a matter of fact, one evolutionist said, although intensively studied, the phylogenetic relationships, that is the evolutionary relationships mm -hmm. between the different groups of rodents has been a matter of debate for over 150 years. Mm. So rodents have always been rodents. Uh, beavers are just amazing with their ability to cut down trees using their very formidable teeth. And the te teeth are kind of an orange color. Now, why is that? Well, it's due to iron deposits. So God has designed the teeth of beavers to have these iron deposits that cause the teeth to be very, very sharp. And beavers have no problem in cutting these trees down and doing what beavers do and building the dams and helping out with the ecosystems. The beavers are also belong to a group called the mammals. So they have hair, obviously, and mammary glands that give birth to live young. And uh, Hickman and four other evolutionists writing in 2020 in a zoology textbook said that the fossil record is silent on the appearance of mammary glands of these rodents. 
And uh, Cardong said in 2012 in his book on vertebrates, a university-level textbook, he said, and I quote, the origin of lactation in mammals remains a complex issue. Well, complex indeed. They just simply don't know. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at all of these kinds of animals, we see that they show up complete, fully formed, and highly complex. In addition, we find that 40% of all mammals are rodents. And that's what we're talking about when we discuss beavers. And that 20% of all mammals are bats. I did they, not know that. They don't know where the, uh, the rodents came from. Evolutionists don't know where bats come from. Mm -hmm. And so, so now, all of a sudden, 60% of all the mammals that we know about show up suddenly, completely, fully formed. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly uh, uh, the basis of the creation model. So we're very excited to see that as we study God's living creation, even though it's been corrupted by sin, we see the case for creation. In this case, with the fossil record that shows a complete and sudden appearance of these animals. All of that's really interesting. That is fantastic. So let's just step back. You referenced something a second ago, and I think we should dive a little bit deeper into it before we continue with talking about our favorite mammals. Let's talk just a little bit. I know... Most of us are familiar with the concept of mammals. We kind of know a mammal when we see one. But let's just go ahead and define that. How would you define a mammal, just as we continue to talk about some of these animals? Well, mammals are very, very unique and horribly complex creatures, of <laughs> course. Uh, now, people have mammalian traits or characteristics. Um, I say that people are created in God's image. And so God has adorned us, if you will, with traits and characteristics of mammals. So a mammal is a vertebrate. It has a brain and spinal cord. They have mammary glands. They uh, have hair, which is quite unique mm -hmm. to mammals. And even the blue whale has very subtle uh, hairs on its belly. So they are also mammals. And of course, uh, mammary glands and mammary glands are undergoing lactation. And so all this is very, very complex and is unique to this group called the mammals. And so we have to ask the question, where did mammals come from? And according to evolutionists, uh, mammals have always been mammals, for example. And uh, when it comes to teeth, I just want to share something by an evolutionist who is an authority on teeth. He wrote this book in 2010. His name is Peter Ungar. Peter Ungar is no creationist. And Dr. Ungar said the details of when, where, why, and how teeth first appeared still elude consensus. And end quote. And so, yeah, mammals have teeth, and of course, uh, other animals have teeth as well. For example, amphibians and reptiles and all, and even birds have a, a shell tooth that they help to break apart the shell as, as they uh, come out of the shell. But the point is that teeth have always been teeth, and this is none more true than when we look at the fossil record and see just a mass of teeth, and really in studying the... Uh, the rodents, we find that so many of these rodent groups, we know only by their teeth. Well, just like you were talking about with the beaver, mm -hmm. I always just assumed that their teeth were yellow because they were dirty, because that's why our teeth get yellow as humans. Exactly. But just the fact that God designed them with those iron deposits right? so that they're specially designed to do what they need to do, that's amazing. So beaver have to keep 
uh, uh, using their teeth to keep them worn down. And the way that God has divine, designed the, uh, the teeth of the beaver, they get worn down in a way that causes their teeth to be very, very sharp. And so um, beaver have to keep uh, working at the teeth and, and gnawing at the, at the various kinds of trees and all that. Otherwise, their teeth grow get out of control. Now, beaver are also unique in that they have fur that is really of two types. They have the, the large fur on the outside, and then they have more subtle, more uh, fine fur in, on, uh, on the skin itself. Mm-hmm. So it's two kinds of fur. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to fur or hair, we find that hair has always been hair. In the evolutionary uh, interpretation of the fossil record where they have found traces of hair, they say it's 100% hair. And so even though it's allegedly millions of years old, and there's nothing simple about hair. Hair is very complex. It's just as complex, for example, as feathers. Mm -hmm. Um, They show up complete and fully formed. And so we find that God has adorned various mammals with fur or hair, depending on what uh, ecological system it's going to find itself in. That's really interesting, too, because a lot of those who follow the evolutionary worldview, they think that that creature's environment shaped them to have these features. Mm -hmm. But do you think that these creatures could have survived without these features already in place, even for a few generations? No, they would, you know, that's a thing. You know, we, we can kind of be an armchair, uh, I, you know, give an armchair a theoretical idea as to whether they could have survived or not. But in the final analysis, they need everything that God has given them mm-hmm. in order to survive. And so that's none the more true, for example, with uh, the beaver and, mm-hmm. and just how they build not only the dam, but also the lodge they live in. And it's it's a very sophisticated ecological ecological makeup for these creatures. And uh, I think it, it reflects creation. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so our first favorite is, well, I'm not going to put them in a ranking order, but the first one we're talking about is beavers. Let's move on to one that is my personal favorite. This is my favorite animal in the whole world. Let's talk about dogs. What are some special features that dogs have and just ways that it points to our creator? Dogs. That's a good one. Uh, dogs are a man's best friend, as they say, and dogs uh, are just amazing. You know, what can you say in just a few minutes about dogs? We're up to here, scientifically speaking, of dogs in the United States. They, they We have untold millions of dogs, and they come in all shapes and all sizes. But what we want to emphasize is that dogs have always been dogs. And um, when you think about a dog, you think about how friendly they are, how dedicated they are to their master or mistress, and certainly that's true. But one thing about dogs is that they have this long muzzle. Some Mm -hmm. don't. But this long muzzle, they hold something called olfactory nerves. And olfactory nerves help with smelling, or as we say in zoology, olfaction. And the olfactory nerves of dogs are quite amazing. For every one olfactory nerve that people have, 
Dogs have about 50. Oh, wow. So okay. they can smell about, some would say, about 100,000 times better than wow. people can. And so when you come home and you may have been petting a neighbor, neighbor's uh, dog or whatever, your dog will smell that immediately and say, where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, their ability to smell or olfaction is incredibly complex and very, very developed. Now, how could something like that come about by time and chance and natural processes? As as a matter of fact, when it comes to the sense of smell, we find whether in all of the mammals, for example, something called gated G protein receptors. Okay. That is on these olfactory smelling cells that God has designed to us and other mammals uh, that have mammal traits. Uh, the, these um, olfactory nerves have special gates, protein gates that are submicroscopic in each one of the nerves by the hundreds of thousands called these G protein gated receptors and in such a way that they can help with distinguishing a multitude of scents. And uh, of course, evolutionists don't know where these, these proteins that are dotting the surface membrane of the nerve cell came from. That's a mystery, but I think it points very, very clearly uh, to, for example, the creation model. But speaking of olfaction, dogs can be trained to detect, of all things, cancer. And they can be trained to, to smell, for example, breath, uh, urine, or blood samples, and in that way, detect cancer. Now, how good is a dog at detecting cancer once it's been trained? Well, anywhere from 88 to 97% successful. That is amazing. That it is all incredible. Has, it all has to do with those gated G-protein receptors mm -hmm. that dogs have a numerable number, much more than, for example, people. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, uh, machines can, can be made to uh, detect cancer in the samples that I just mentioned, but the machines are only detecting ability to uh, detect about 85 to 90 percent. And so dogs have more a beat. More accurate than the machines. Yeah, more accurate. Wow. Yeah. And so that's really, really neat. And by the way, when we talk about dogs, we talk about the variety of dogs. Mm -hmm. And there's about 340 modern dog breeds out there. But what's amazing is they've only emerged within, the two uh, within about two centuries. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. 340 uh, okay. modern breed dog breeds and only within the, about the last two centuries. So that's amazing. And so, you know, we can breed varieties of dogs, mm -hmm. but we always get dogs from the Mexican Chihuahua to the Great Dane and everything in between. And um, we don't have that kind of variation, for example, with cats, and nobody really knows why. Hmm. But, um, you know, dogs, dogs have them beat. So as one vertebrate paleontologist said in 2015, and I quote, the history of today's dogs, he said, is still contentious, quote unquote, is still contentious. We keep hearing those words because I've heard a lot of these um, papers from evolutionary points of view, just from talking with y'all, talking with mm -hmm. the scientists here at ICR, mm -hmm. and even just reading secular and conventional articles about science and different aspects of evolution. I try to read um, other periodicals and stuff in addition to what we put out. And it's so interesting how often those words show up in articles and studies that are from an evolutionary worldview. There's, it's still contentious. It's still a mystery. It's still unknown. Um, it is just, we, we don't know that at this point, or we're still trying to figure that out. It's just so interesting how frequently we hear those things where 
Like we already know where it came from. And so we can just enjoy what we're seeing now because we already know the answer. And it's interesting just with the variety of dogs that you were talking about. My family and I actually every year on Thanksgiving, we watch the national dog show on TV Mm -hmm. and you can just see all the different variety of dogs. We love it because there's so much variety. And this dog has these special skills where it can do this. And this dog has this feature that allows it to do this, that maybe this other dog can't do as well, but And it helps them in the different environments that they are bred for or that they live in. And that's just fascinating to me that God put all of that engineering um, information inside dogs that they can do all of these different things and just the sheer variety that we see. So Mm -hmm. that's that's amazing. Thank you. Did you have anything else you want to tell us about dogs? Well, you know, for example, with sheepdogs, uh, they are trained and highly effective at, of course, herding sheep, so much so that the sheep herder, the shepherd, can use just a series of whistles or even hand signals. Mm. The dog knows exactly what to do to herd those sheep and, and uh, in in a way that they do it that is utterly amazing. And uh, so uh, my hat is off to these, uh, you know, the, the relationship between the shepherd and his uh, dog in keeping the sheep in line. It's really amazing. But where dogs come from and how old various groups of dogs are is still a bit of a mystery. According to Science Daily, which is an evolutionary publication, uh, they said that in 2020. So just a few years ago, Mm -hmm. they don't know where dogs come from or how old various groups of dogs are. Now, I hasten to add that that we're not criticizing the evolutionists for making this admission. As a matter of fact, we salute them. We salute them for being intellectually honest and saying that they don't know, and that's fine. That's what science is about is research. And we at the Institute for creation research. And so we like to research too, but we start at a very different foundation than that of the evolutionist. And so we know where dogs came from and the evolutionists uh, don't, and, and we're not you know, denigrating them on that, but um, the, it's very, very clear that dogs have always been dogs. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's important just for people to realize um, whatever your worldview is, it's important that you realize you have a worldview. Yes. There's no such thing as a truly unbiased person. Right. So we all start with our presupposition. Whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, we all have a foundation of which we draw. And so we all have a bias, right? We all come to the party with our biases. Mm -hmm. The question is, which bias is the best bias to be biased with? (laughs) (laughs) And the fossil record and science itself points so clearly to creation. And that's what often confuses me because I'll often read comments on our social media accounts or even on YouTube and other places where people who disagree with us will say, well, show me the evidence. And I'm always confused by that because it's like, well, we're showing you the evidence and there's not any evidence, there's not any undisputed evidence that backs up their worldview. Mm -hmm. And so I do hope that people will be able to just intellectually honest look at things and say, where does the evidence point? Mm -hmm. And they will see that the evidence points towards dogs came from dogs because God created them as dogs. Mm -hmm. And they just keep making different kinds of dogs, but it's still dogs and that's the case with every other animal we're talking about here so that's this is really good so far i'm i'm excited about this and of course dogs are my favorite so i especially enjoyed that part but the next animal is fun too and i know that this is a favorite of a lot of people what about elephants what are some special features that elephants have and how do they point us towards our creator 
Well, elephants are one of the largest uh, of the the land animals, and they happen to be mammals. And uh, elephants are called pachyderms, and it, it refers back to their skin. And elephants, first of all, are unique. They are very unique. You have the Indian elephants and the African elephants. And one of the saddest things I can say in this interview is that poaching is just getting mm -hmm. out of hand. Yes. And so many of the tusks, which are really teeth of the elephants, are, are uh, taken out. And uh, so many of the African countries are protecting the elephants. They have to use armed guards, basically, Goodness. to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so elephants are, are really a unique kind of a created creature. Uh, elephants have always been elephants. You know, and uh, you have the elephant kind, such as the two I just mentioned. And during the Ice Age, we have some of the, uh, uh, the hairy-type mastodons, which might be of the elephant kind as well. Like woolly mammals and such? Yeah, woolly mammoths. mammoths. And, yeah. Them. And, and so, uh, but they've always been uh, elephants of that elephant kind. Now, what's really interesting is when you look at the elephants, uh, you find that long trunk. And that is something that people think about all the time, this long trunk. Well, it's very agile. You can take, the elephant can take the end of their, tru their tr trunk, the the, the very tip of it, and are able to move things in a very subtle manner. Well, that takes good nervous coordination by way of muscles. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of muscles are used by the elephant in order to uh, move very, very subtle uh, things with the tip of its trunk, which is very sensitive, by the way. But also, all those muscles can be used at once to contract to move very, very large objects like logs or whatever else. But as I say, uh, elephants are very, very... Uh, uh, um, smart. They're very intelligent. And people who work with elephants find that as an elephant gets into the idea of what they're supposed to do, the, the handler doesn't really have to do anything. Hmm. And uh, elephants are, are able to get the job done. Now this gets into a little bit of science, what we call empirical science. There's a young lady, I'd say several decades ago, maybe 20 years ago, who is not a creationist, who was in Africa, and she was observing elephants. They were standing kind of in a group. And she listened, and she could hear some low-frequency sounds. And she thought that was kind of interesting, and it seemed to be emanating from the elephants. Hmm. And the elephants were producing this low-frequency sound that was vibrating through the ground and could evidently be picked up by other elephants a fair distance away. I'm not sure of the distance. And so uh, this is something that nobody ever knew about elephants before and that they can emit this vibrational energy that can be picked up by other ele elephants. So what's the point here? The point is that that's good science. This individual observed what was going on and asked questions. Mm -hmm. And that's what science is all about. And or should so, be all about. Yeah, or should be. And, and that's what we can do as creationists too. That's, that's amazing <laughs> stuff. So the next one is another fun one, the next animal we're going to talk about. And so we are going to jump into our kangaroo discussion. <laughs> you get it? That was, yes, that was for you, Frank. I, I know that. you love jokes, and that was a horrible one. But yeah. let's jump into kangaroos. So what are some of kangaroos' special features? Well, obviously, kangaroos are, are very, very special. The larger kangaroos are called the red kangaroo, I believe. And uh, they are unique only to Australia. 
And so evolutionists want to make a big deal about that and say, you know, well, why don't we find uh, kangaroo fossils anywhere else? But looking at the creation model, we find that the Earth is only around 6,000 years old and that uh, the flood occurred about 4,500 years ago. The ark landed on Mount Ararat that had kangaroos as well as dinosaurs and all the other animals. Uh, the ark landed at Mount Ararat. The animals got out months later and began to migrate. And so the kangaroos migrated, we believe, and we had... We aren't sure because we can't go back in time, but they they migrated from the Mount Ararat region to a land of Australia through what we believe to be a, a, a land bridge. Mm -hmm. Keeping in mind, however, that kangaroos can swim and they can swim very well. Can they? Uh, yeah, there's there's a story about that. Maybe I might might get into in a minute. But the fact is that kangaroos made it to Australia. There was tectonic activity, the land bridge evidently broke and so then kangaroos that we're talking about specifically find found themselves in australia and so uh, kangaroos are mammals they give birth to live uh, young and they are not placental mammals uh, and so they aren't like uh, for example the mammals we find a, a around the world kangaroos are very unique and in, and in, in not being placental mammals and so when the does that just mean they they don't produce a placenta when they're pregnant. right right okay. and a placenta is a very unique created organ mm -hmm. that is the uh the go-between for example of the mother and the baby in ways that we still don't understand don't get me started on the placenta it's, <laughs> it's a placenta it's a very very unique organ but uh, with when the mama kangaroo gives birth to the young, the young is very, very tiny. And the, the mama has to watch the young come out, and then she's very still, and the young makes their way up the fur of the mama and then is able to get over the lip of the pouch of the mm -hmm. mother. Once it gets inside of the pouch there, and the mother can't do anything, the baby has to do it all, uh, the joey, as they call it, that's the baby, the joey goes down into the pouch, and then it attaches itself to the nipple of the mom and keeps that attachment just right there for uh, weeks at a time or months at a time and grows and grows and grows. And so that's the second half of the development of the joey, the oh, baby. You know what? I never knew that. Obviously, we all know that can the baby kangaroos, yeah. that joeys spend time inside their mother's pouch. But I right. personally didn't know that that was such a crucial part of baby's Very development. Crucial. Wow. Yeah. And the mother really can't do anything. And and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's really a, a unique kind of a, a setup that God has designed in the, the kangaroo. And, of course, they are have a special... Uh, anatomical makeup that helps with their their bounding and their bouncing mm -hmm. and their uh, ability to get along <laughs> and, and they are kind of rough and tumble as as a mammal uh, the mother can defend the joeys very effectively almost like boxing huh. and using their tail and their tail is very sturdy very heavy and uh, kangaroos use that tail that they have very effectively as well so uh, the kangaroos are, are just amazing. Now, when kangaroos break a leg, they don't use crutches. They use a pogo stick. Oh, okay. I think mine might have been better. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no, that's... Those are such fun creatures. So to know a few more facts about them, because obviously they're just fun to watch. You see videos yeah. of them trying to box people and yeah. you see them, you hear about them kicking and things like right. that. But to learn yeah. some of the more detailed yeah. 
facts about them. It's really interesting. So, you know, they, uh, years, this is decades ago, they were following a kangaroo as it was bounding along, and it was going along without uh, uh, breaking a sweat, basically, mile after mile after mile, and it went onto the beach there, in, and I forget what section of Australia it was, and went into the water and started swimming. Uh, without you know breaking stride or anything, and unfortunately, he was over, overcome by sharks, and so was devoured Aww. by sharks. But no telling how far it could have uh, a swam as well. Right. So, man, you didn't warn me for that one, Frank. That was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, again, we would have to emphasize that that uh, kangaroos have always been kangaroos. Mm-hmm. There is no evolutionary precursor, mm-hmm. and that's why they can't find one. That's it. Yeah, that's it. absolutely. Okay, so at this point. We're going to take a step back before we tackle the last few animals. And it's time for, drum roll please, our random science question of the day. And it's related to what we're talking about. Um, and actually, you touched on it briefly earlier, the general topic I'm going to ask you about. So we know that humans are considered mammals that we're in that category that we have. I think you mentioned mammalian um, features to us. Traits and characteristics. Traits and characteristics. Yeah. So... What separates humans? Because we know from God's word, we're created in the image of God. Mm. There are no other animals that are created in the image of God. We don't believe that we are animals. We believe that we're created distinct, and yet we have features similar to. So with all of that, what do you think differentiates humans from, quote, other mammals? Yeah, well, the fact that we can appreciate art, art, art and literature and things such as that. We can do poetry, for example, and uh, write Shakespearean plays and, and do all sorts of things that uh, uh, other animals can't do. We're doing incredible investigation and research. We're, we're building machines that go out a uh, million miles from Earth to take infrared pictures of the depths of space. We, we call that the James Webb Space Telescope and sending that information one million miles back to Earth in picture, clear, you know, very, very clear and crisp. And so uh, there's so many things uh, about people that separate us from the animal kingdom. Now, an evolutionary naturalist tries very, very hard to say that people and animals are the same. And of course, as you just mentioned, we would disagree with that. We have been created in God's image and that uh, there are things about it. You know, we can worship, for example, and we have free will. So many things that separate us uh, from the animals. And granted, many people act like animals. Fair. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that doesn't mean we came from animals. Mm-hmm. You know, the ape-like ancestors simply do not exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the missing links are missing, and the hypothetical uh, link between people and, and uh, apes or chimpanzees is still missing. And we would maintain, according to the creation model, that the, that particular missing link that would supposedly caused us to diverge away from the chimpanzees and the apes and so forth, the monkeys, never will be found mm-hmm. because it never existed. Well, and even the ones that have been claimed over the... There have been plenty of times that someone has claimed to have found a missing link or the missing link or mm-hmm. something between apes and humans. And it has been either outright debunked or at least questioned every single time. And they're yeah. never going to find, like you said, they're never going to find the true missing link because something that doesn't exist is going to stay missing. Yeah, you can't find it. Yeah. 
So we find the shattered remains, for example, of these ape-like ancestors and all that. And Lucy, Australopithecus mm -hmm. afarensis, is mm -hmm. the most popular, right. supposedly, of these. But Lucy was just 100% ape. She had ape-like arms, ape-like legs, ape-like fingers and toes, ape-like skull, ape-like, uh, for example, brain, as far as we can tell. The big question was, did Lucy walk upright? That's what the evolutionary community says. To our answer then is a big deal. We have the living pygmy chimpanzee in zoos, and we can go there and observe the living pygmy chimpanzee that 10% of the time, approximately, they walk upright. You can tell she doesn't like to, but they can. And it's so, still an ape. Yeah, and it's still an ape. And, and so uh, there's been all sorts of problems that have been unearthed, literally, regarding um, Lucy or Australopithecus mm -hmm. that makes it, makes it less and less likely, even from an evolutionary perspective, that that's supposedly a missing link. Right. I'm just going go to go ahead and put a plug in now. ICR did produce a video about um, this related issue called Adam or Apes. You can get it on DVD. I believe it's also available for digital download now. Um, so feel free for our listeners, if you want to hear more about humans versus apes, I would highly recommend um, that you go on and take a look at that. It's, it was really educational for me, and I, I think it'll be helpful for you if you're still confused about just the relationship between apes and humans, because um, there are some similarities, not enough similarities for us to be related to them. So I think you'll be encouraged by that. But okay, so that was a great answer to our random science question of the day. Let's kind of dive back into the subject at hand and move on with our next amazing mammal, the humpback whale. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The humpback whale is an amazing creature. First of all, it's a mammal. Okay, It has hair and mammary glands. It gives birth to live young. And really, that is an amazing process. When the whale gives birth to its uh, offspring there, it obviously occurs underwater. Mm -hmm. And there are, are nursing whales. There are whales there that act as nurses uh, to help the mother uh, to release the baby into the water. That's she actually gives amazing birth. in and of itself that there are other nurse whales that are yeah. helping out there. Yeah. That's a lot of intelligence. It, that is. And and so they, they help with the, the birth as, as much as they can. And with the flip of the tail, the, the baby comes out. And of course, it's a mammal, so it has to breathe. And so the baby goes up to the surface of the water and takes its first breath, which then opens up the lungs and so forth. And so that is really quite an amazing process that occurs, and it's built right into the whales, this instinct, and it's it's a God-given instinct. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the humpback whale, for example, we find that it is a formidable creature. The tongue weighs over two tons. Just the tongue? Yeah, just Ooh. the tongue, two tons. And the heart weighs about 1,000 pounds. Mm. And so you could almost get lost inside of a whale heart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as a matter of fact, the circulatory system of the created whale is, is so big that a, a, a rainbow trout can easily swim in the larger blood vessels oh of, the, of the humpback whale. And so, again, this, this shows the incredible, incredible design features of these, uh, uh, of these animals. Now, evolutionists have no recourse but to say that the whales came from a land ancestor. 
And so following the evolutionary narrative, they say that life supposedly began, began in the water and that slowly but surely these uh, fish-like creatures became the first amphibians. And so these fish-like creatures finally made their way out onto land and evolved from amphibians into reptiles and mammals and birds and all that. And through the millions of years, some of these mammals decided to go back into the water, okay? And so some one group of evolutionists say it was like the hippopotamus uh, ancestor th that went back in the water. Others say, no, it was some other uh, type. And Again, so, it's unknown. It's a mystery. Yeah, that's it. It's, it. it's a mystery. It's unknown. They're not sure. And it's, it's really quite a stretch to say a four-legged creature lost those four legs, except for some residual legs that's found embedded into the tissues, which is a problem with evolution. They don't really get into that. But this uh, four-legged creature would be standing millions and millions of years ago in the shallow water saying, wow, I bet the eating is better out there, <laughs> and slowly began to evolve from a four-legged creature back into an aquatic creature from whence they came millions of years earlier. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very much of a stretch considering all of the fossil evidence that should be there but is not there, mm -hmm. except for some very uh, highly questionable uh, missing links. But again, it's even evolutionists that, that question some of them. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's, I can understand on a certain level the fact that they're wanting to use their imaginations with that just because it is such a unique creature. Like it lives under the water, but it breathes air. It gives birth to its babies, just like you might see a cow giving birth to its babies. And <laughs> it's just, it's a very strange situation. So I can understand they're wanting to use their imagination with that. But at the same time, like we got to follow where the evidence leads. And also ultimately we have to follow the authority of scripture, which says that God created all animals after their kind, including the humpback whale. Yeah. So that's amazing. Uh, when you go to the American Museum of Natural History, the authority said there in April of 2021, and I quote, but how and when cetacean ancestors, cetacea are the whales, like the humpback whale, cetacean ancestors became fully aquatic remains a, a subject of intense debate. So not just debate, but intense debate when it comes to these so-called cetacean ancestors. We would say that they never existed, and even way back in the year 2021, they're saying intense debate. So, again, we're not criticizing them, and, and I, I appreciate their intellectual honesty, but <clears throat> they're We're just pointing out short. it doesn't have to be a mystery. Yeah. We already yeah. know where they came from. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, our next animal is a quirky little guy called the pangolin. And I know some of our very young viewers might not have even heard of this one before. It's not one that you see in children's books next to the dog and the cat and the cow and all of that. But tell us a little bit about this incredible creature. Well, the pangolin really is quite a unique creature. It looks kind of like a miniature walking tank. <laughs> and what makes the pangolin so unique is its external anatomy, that they, they ha are designed by the creator to have these bony plates. And when the pangolin is in danger, it will roll up in kind of a tight armored ball. Mm -hmm. And even the most hungry predator would finally give up trying to get past all of those armored plates of the pangolin. And so it's found in Africa and Asia. 
and they eat a lot of ants and termites and such. But it's these bony plates that are its downfall mm. because poachers like to get in there and get the pangolin for its bony plates. Oh. And the, 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 it's just something that, unfortunately, many people like. And so there's a black market. We have the poaching. We have the trafficking. To the extent that nobody's really sure how many pangolins are left, but it's it's just a, a tragic situation, much like with the poaching of African elephants. Mm. But pangolins, once again, are a testimony to design. Pangolins have always been pangolins. The fossil record shows that pangolins have always been nothing but pangolins. Mm -hmm. And they have a unique digestive system because when they eat these uh, ants and termites, they have a long sticky tongue that can get up to the length of its body. They get out there and they, their tongue out there, they sweep up the ants and termites, bring it back to the mouth, and the ants and termites go right down into the stomach where you have a kind of a, a grinding, unique anatomy of the stomach that is found only in this group of animals that include the pangolins that grind up these uh, insects. Now, insects have something called formic acid, which is the simplest of what we call in biochemistry carboxylic acid. And it can be quite toxic. And yet the creator has designed the pangolin to be able to uh, endure the carboxylic acid and extract energy from the uh, ants and insects. And we know that because we still have pangolins today. There you go. They <laughs> so haven't been poisoned off. That's right. And they've been very, very effective. All right. So the last animal we're going to talk about today, the last mammal, is one that you already mentioned in passing earlier as being one of the most prominent members of the mammal group. So let's talk about bats. What are some unique features of bats? How do they point us to the creator? I know the bats are kind of dividing. A lot of people love them. A lot of people get freaked out by them. They're in <laughs> horror movies and things like that. So tell us a little bit about bats. Well, bats are unique mammals. First of all, they're flying mammals. And bats make up one-fifth of the mammalia, the mammals. And so they're a lot more common than people think. Now, we look at bats, and, and, and we think that bats are all uh, with rabies and all. And, and uh, that's true. Some do have rabies, but many of them do not. In fact, many Asian groups see bats as a symbol of good luck. And so they're review, uh, revered in these, in these um, Asian groups. And certainly uh, that's true. They are unique animals. They're very, very important, for example, in insect uh, population control. And so bats as flying mammals are, are just incredible with what they can do, not only with their flight capabilities, that they can pick up uh, uh, insects, as something as small as mosquitoes, on the wing and scoop them right up into their mouth. But how, they, how do they do that? How are they able to find these tiny insects? Well, the answer is sonar. Bats are designed by the creator to have sonar, putting out these ultrasonic pitches in such a way that it strikes whatever is out there, be them uh, any kind of uh, a flying insect, and then the, the uh, bat goes towards it and scoops it up and does that immediately, and it's very, very effective. And so um, it's called the sonar system. And there's two groups of bat, the mega and the micro bats. The mega bats do not have the sonar capability. The micro bats do. But boy, is that sonar capability effective. Now, 
when the bat sends out a sonar pulse, it does so from its its nose area, its nasal area, and it sends it out in a high-pitched click, and then it strikes the victim and then comes right back. So what does a bat have to do? It has to know where to send out that sonar pitch and then to interpret the information as it comes back to them. But sometimes these sonar pitches go out in such a loud volume that it would deafen the bat because the ears are right there. Mm -hmm. And so what the creator has done in his infinite wisdom is just as the bat is sending out this high-pitched sonar pulse, which would deafen the bat, there is a tiny muscle in the inner ear that contracts and it closes off that ear so that the high-pitched click does not deafen the bat. And then as a muscle fiber, it relaxes again. Why does it relax? Because it has to interpret what's reflected back to the bat. Mm -hmm. And so we find that the bat is sending out these high-pitched clicks and it's the the muscle is contracting in the inner ear just as fast as it can, but then it releases f quickly too, so that it can interpret the the information coming back. And then the bat has to make in course flight adjustments in order to get that tiny morsel. Well, we've seen bats chasing exactly things at night. Yeah. Sometimes during twilight, depending on where you live, you can see that, and they are adjusting their course in a very detailed way to follow that bug or whatever they're chasing. This is what's so unique about the bat. Uh, it can pick up something as fine as human hair, a human oh hair. Oh, my word. And so did that come about by time and chance and natural processes? Or do we see bats created due to creation according, according to a uh, design that the creator had? Now, when you look at the wing of the bat, you find that there are very special uh, uh, receptors on the wing, and it helps the wing to move in such a way that has a low pressure area causing lift in the bat, and in a way that is they're just beginning to appreciate. So the membrane, the skin membrane of the bat is really a receptor of sensory information. And they didn't know that until about 20 years ago. So the more, just like any other animal you study, the more you study it, the more amazed they are as to its design. But where did bats come from? We say that bats were created as bats during the six days of creation, just thousands of years ago. One evolutionist said, and I quote, while it is still unclear whether modern bats arose rapidly or gradually from their quadruped ancestor, four-legged ancestor, it does seem certain that their evolution required many molecular changes to dramatically alter morphology, that, that is the physical makeup, from limb to a wing. And that was said in 2008 by two evolutionists. Well, when you think about it, you know, bats are exquisitely designed as bats, and their wings, evolutionists say, came from the front legs of some kind of rodent. But <laughs> we don't find any fossils of that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an Eocene layer of sediments in the fossil record, and we have found approximately, and by that I mean paleontologists have found, approximately 1,000 fossil bats in this Eocene layer of sediments. Guess what they are? They're all 100% fossil bats, mm -hmm. not animals on their way to becoming bats with something that's half leg and half wing. They are 100% fossil bats. Well, because they wouldn't have been able to survive any other way. Some of the features that you've described are so 
detailed. Some of these things we didn't even understand until what last century with some of the sonar stuff and all oh, of that. Yeah, yeah. And all of these features are so incredibly detailed and they had to be just right or else that bat doesn't eat. And if yeah. that bat doesn't eat, that bat doesn't live. And all of these features have to be there just right at the same time for the bat to continue to live and reproduce and new generations to come. And not only is it not possible for evolution to have produced those features just because time and chance can't do that, but also there wouldn't have been enough time because they would have died out so soon because of the lack of those features. So that's, that's amazing. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with bats? Well, you know, when we look at the, for example, my, one of my favorite bats, which is the South Pacific fruit bat, when you look at their dentition, their teeth, it's formidable. Uh, their teeth are wicked. They, they just look terrible. And people would be led to the assumption that they must have been carnivores. But that's not the case. They, they uh, exist exclusively on fruit. But when you look at some of the uh, fruit in the South Pacific area, the fruits have a hard husk, very difficult to, uh, to um, uh, tear it away. Mm -hmm. And so God has designed the, the mega bats, these fruit bats, with a dentition, the teeth, that can tear away these husks and get to the fruit itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of neat. And so they don't have uh, the, the sonar that these other bats, ha uh, the micro bats have. Because God knew that they wouldn't need it. Exactly. They had another way to get food. Exactly. So they were specially designed in that way. Uh, one evolutionist uh, named Tai, T-I-E, writing in 2015, he said, quote, scientists have found bat fossils dating back 55 million years ago but they still do not know the genesis of their evolution, end quote. And so the evolutionists are making the point for us that bats have always been bats. Now, mm -hmm. we don't agree, obviously, with all those millions of years. I call them Darwin years. <laughs> uh, bats have always been bats since their creation just thousands of years ago. Absolutely. And that's the same, as you've reminded us, that's the same with all of the animals that we've talked about today with beavers and dogs, elephants, kangaroos, humpback whales, pangolins, bats, and even humans, as we touched on in our mm -hmm. random science question of the day, humans have always been humans. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing to me that we have such a wise and creative and powerful God to make all of these things. And at the end of the day, I think everyone on the planet pretty much sits in awe of some of these animals but it all comes down to where you're going to give the credit. Are you going to give the credit that is due to the creator, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you going to give the credit to some magical force in nature that shaped these things and used creativity to make all these features over millions of years? And it's just, it's beautiful to see how this does point to a creator. Um, nature could not have done this on its own. And that's just, it's very, very encouraging for me to see just from one of my favorite science topics and um, <laughs> topics in general, animals, um, just to see the work of God in that. So any additional thoughts just before we wrap up? Well, again, you know, animals have always been animals and uh, that we see their design and uh, we, when we look at the design of animals, we maintain there must be a designer. And this designer is incredibly brilliant that would be able to design the varieties of animals to live in the various ecosystems, whether it's in the air or on land or in the sea or below this, under the sea. We find that they are all exquisitely designed to inhabit those various ecosystems. We don't attribute that to time and chance and natural processes. 
but to plan and purpose that we give to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done during the six days of creation. Absolutely. No, that's such an encouragement. And even thinking about sonar with your last topic of bats, Mm -hmm. just thinking about that and the human person who came up with sonar for machines and for airplanes back in, I believe it was the 1940s, might have been a little earlier than that. In submarines. In submarines. And I know you're very familiar with that, having been in the the U.S. Navy. (laughs) But people don't look at that sonar and say, oh, it happened. Right. And yet they look at the same thing in the animal kingdom, and all of a sudden, it's just a coincidence. So that's that would be such an affront to that person who came up with sonar for all of these different machines if we just said, oh, it just happened. And it is an affront to our creator um, to just say that it all happened. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Sherwin. I've really enjoyed um, this discussion of these different mammals and just learning new facts about them, some of which were new to me and then others is just a great reminder of the glory of our creator. So thank you so much. And to our listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us today. Um, We hope that you've enjoyed this discussion on some different animals in creation. Um, I know a lot of you have a soft spot for animals as well. So feel free to share this um, with people you know in your life. Maybe they do believe that things happen the way the Bible says they did or Maybe they don't, but regardless, share this podcast episode with them just as an encouragement that our creator is a powerful God, and um, he's also the same one that gives us the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. So hopefully that can be a good segue into the gospel even um, for some of the people in your life. But we encourage you to subscribe. You always want to be the first one to know about new ICR content, and we'll see you next time on the Creation Podcast.